Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are back in Proverbs chapter 21 tonight. Earlier in our study of the book of Proverbs, we would occasionally cover a chapter or more in a single night. For whatever reason, Proverbs 21, this is now our third Wednesday night looking at this chapter. And I was thinking about it today and trying to analyze why exactly has it taken us three weeks to get through Proverbs 21 And here is my theory on that. I think as we've been going through the book of Proverbs, we have seen themes develop. There are certain things that Solomon concentrates on, things that he keeps going back to. And we're going to see that again tonight. We're going to see several of those same themes turn up. But now as we're sort of assembling the great weight of evidence... We're so familiar with these themes and everything that Solomon has said about any of these particular topics that it kind of allows us to dig deeper into those particular topics and that it allows us to see more of Solomon's thinking on those things. Obviously, there are things that Solomon just doesn't talk about, but he is emphasizing things like God's sovereignty and The uh, beginning of wisdom being the fear of the Lord. He is talking from the standpoint of a father about how to raise a child correctly. He is talking from the standpoint of a king about righteous judgment and treating people fairly and not giving undue respect to the rich people and not oppressing the poor. These are thematic elements that we've seen all the way along in the book of Proverbs. And so by the time we got to Proverbs 21, we were able to really dig down deep into what lays behind Solomon saying these things. If you were to look at any of these Proverbs individually, singularly, then they are just short, pithy sayings, and you don't get a great deal of depth out of it as much as you get sort of a truism out of it. But as we combine these truisms collectively you start to get an overall theology and philosophy about these topics. And that's why we're able now to dig down a little deeper into it. We are starting in verse 17, and right away we're going to start digging down deeper into it. And the way that we're going to do that is by looking at some of the things that Solomon has already said, some of the things that Solomon is about to say, as we continue to flesh out, to round out our understanding and thinking about Solomon's view of these various different topics. His intention is to talk about quality of personality and character what it takes to be a wise person in society, what it takes to treat people fairly, and what it takes to walk before God according to your knowledge of who God is and what God is like. Those themes then come out of the collective Proverbs that we have read up until now. 
For instance, when we read verse 17, we're going to be very familiar with it now. We're going to say, oh yeah, that's something that Solomon has mentioned before in various different ways. But it's those various different ways of approaching a single topic that allows us to understand the nuance, that allows us to understand the details, so that we end up with more than just a short little pithy saying that might be interesting on its surface. We're able now to dig down deeper. Verse 17 says, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. That is not a contrast. That is Solomon saying the same thing two different ways. First, he says, the one who loves pleasure. That word in the Hebrew, by the way, is the same thing that we saw back in verse 15. The execution of justice is joy for the righteous. That word joy and this word pleasure are both the same Hebrew word. It's just that as it was translated into English, in order to make it more readable and to understand the nuance of what Solomon is getting at, the translators went with two different English words. But you need to know that it's a single Hebrew word. So whether we're saying he who loves pleasure or he who loves joy, the idea is it's somebody who wants his own benefit at all times. It's somebody who wants his own comfort. It's somebody who will go out of his way to make sure that he avoids pain and that everything that comes into his life is pleasurable for him. But he says, if that's the kind of man you are, you're going to end up poor. Then he explains it this way. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Now, we understand the wine part. He who loves wine, well, that's somebody who loves drinking too much, who doesn't want to get up and do the work. We've seen a lot of uh, references from Solomon talking about the sluggard and the lazy man. And then he talks about oil. We don't think of, like, olive oil as being all that precious these days because we can just go to Food Lion and buy some. But when Solomon was writing this, Oil was a very important part of their day-to-day life. You would use oil not only for cooking and preserving food, but you would also use it for its fragrance. You would also use it medicinally. You would also use it like if you had cut yourself or something. Oil was an important part of your daily welfare. In fact, if you look at verse 20 you're going to see Solomon make another reference to oil. And it will give you some idea how precious he thought oil was. It says, there is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. So in the house, in the dwelling of a wise person, there's both precious treasure, which is wealth, riches, the good things of life, and oil. So he equates oil and treasure in that verse. So that gives you some idea where he's placing the idea of oil. It is a precious thing to have in your household, but it's not something that poor people necessarily had in their household. It's not something that they would be spending their time or money on. They couldn't get sufficient oil to be able to say, oh, yes, I have plenty now. So verse 17 says, he who loves 
luxurious living. That's the idea of pleasure there, joyous living. He who loves that kind of thing will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil, which again is luxurious living, is not going to become rich. So ultimately what Solomon is telling us is, if you spend all your days spending what you have, let's say you have wine and oil in your house, and instead of going out and working, instead of going out and being diligent to get more, you're going to run out of it. If you just spend all your time consuming what God has graciously given you, and you're not putting the effort in to get more of it, doing the work, then you're going to end up poor. So again, this is another one of Solomon's sort of sluggard descriptions. He keeps saying you need to be diligent. You need to do the work. You need to go out and do what it takes in order to get the riches that you could then assemble in your house so that there could be some comfort in your life. But if you're lazy, if you don't get up, if you don't do the work, you're going to end up poor. And this is just another aspect of that. Look at verse 25, verse 25 and 26 of this same chapter. Says the desire of the sluggard puts him to death. He's constantly wanting. He's constantly desiring stuff so that he can heap it on his flesh. That's the same idea as he loves the wine and the oil. He loves stuff that he can use to make his own life more pleasurable for himself. So the desire of a sluggard ultimately puts him to death. For his hands refuse to work. Mm. So if you're refusing to do the work, but you're constantly utilizing what you do have in order to make your life more comfortable, that's going to lead ultimately to poverty, and Solomon says that will lead to death. Verse 26 then says, All day long he is craving. In other words, all day long he wants stuff. He wants to heap stuff on himself, on his flesh. He wants to bring pleasure to himself. He's willing to consume the wine and the oil. But in his craving all day long, that makes him the opposite of someone who is righteous. Because the righteous doesn't constantly crave to heap it upon himself The righteous gives and does not hold back. So the contrast is apparent. There is the sluggard, the lazy person, who's ultimately going to become poor because whatever he does assemble, he's just going to heap it on himself to make his own life more pleasurable. And he's constantly going, me, 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 more for me. I crave for me. So he's always wanting. He's always desiring. He's always grabbing things for himself. And that is the opposite of the righteous man who we read will give and will not hold back. Then go to chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 9 says, He who is generous, speaking of the righteous man, he who is generous will be blessed. For he gives some of his food to the poor. So a generous man is willing, if he has plenty, he's willing to share his plenty with those who don't have But then they are also blessed. I think this is one of the more 
intriguing biblical concepts. You find it Old Testament and New Testament. One of the realities of being generous and giving is that you really cannot outgive God. And if you're giving to get, I've seen so many people try to do that, giving to get, giving because they assume that it's true that if you give, God will give you more, and so then they give to get. But God, who knows the heart, doesn't fall for that trick. But a person who is giving out of kindness, a person who is giving out of grace, a person who is giving out of generosity, and giving because they fear God, that kind of giving, not looking for anything in return, It's returned back to you. And here Solomon says it again. That he who is generous does become blessed. God gives back to you. Now God may give back to you materially. Or he may give back to you in blessing you. In wisdom. In understanding. In knowledge. Ultimately in salvation. But God always blesses. Always returns. Is always aware of the generosity that his people demonstrate. So what have we got here if we put all these verses together? What we've got is, he who loves pleasure is going to become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Verse 25, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he's craving more stuff for himself. While the righteous gives and does not hold back. And then verse 9, for he who is generous will be blessed. For he gives some of his food to the poor. Now go to verse 16 of the same chapter. And here's the opposite of that. He who oppresses the poor, rather than being kind and generous to them, he who oppresses the poor to make much for himself, or who gives to the rich only, will only come to poverty. Mm. Now we've come full circle. We're back to how you become poor. You become poor if you crave everything for yourself. If you're selfish, if all your desire is for you and your pleasure, and you're willing to consume everything that God has given you for your own sake, that is going to result in your poverty. Chapter 22, verse 16 says, If you oppress the poor to make more of yourself, or if you only give to the rich so that you get some benefit back from them because they have the power, the authority, the ability to help you, if that's all you do, then you're still going to come to poverty. So I think it's pretty clear that selfishness, egocentric pride that would say, this is mine, it's all mine, and I'm going to heap it on myself, that is going to result in poverty It's going to result in poverty socially, socioeconomically, but it's also going to result in poverty because that's the way God, who sees and who judges, has designed it. He's going to bless the people who are beneficial to the poor, and those who refuse to be kind to the poor are going to end up poor themselves. So see, I think that's a good demonstration of what I was saying in the introduction. As we put more and more of these verses together and understand more of what Solomon has been talking about, we get a deeper understanding of the larger concepts. And the larger concept 
in Solomon's mind is always that generosity is appropriate not just because it's good for the society, but it's appropriate because that's how God expects his people to be. If you understand, if you recognize, if you have the fear of the Lord, then you recognize that nothing that you have is something that you went out and got. Everything you have is something that God allowed for you to have. If God is the source of your wealth, if he is the source of the things you have, and if you are not the source and creator of the things you have, then you have no basis on which to say, I made this, I created it, therefore it's mine, therefore I don't have to share it with anybody. Instead, because all good things come from God, then you ought to be generous with those things, because after all, God gave it to you, you ought to do the same and give it to whoever has need for it. If you only give to get, Solomon equates it with only giving to the rich. The reason you would give to the rich is because the rich can do something for you. He says, well, that's going to drive you to poverty too. So, obviously, the big picture is generosity. Generosity is godliness. God was generous to you. You, therefore, be generous to those people who also have need You had need, God provided for you. Others have needs, you provide for them. Got all that? Got it, sir. Okay, we got one verse tonight. All right, good. We're making making headway. Now, verse 18, I will admit, is a sort of unique verse. It's a unique little couplet. We don't have a lot of backstory on this particular proverb and as I've read various different commentaries on it uh, no two commentaries seem to agree with each other it says the wicked is a ransom for the righteous and the treacherous is in the place of the upright now when we as Christians As New Testament people, when we see this idea of ransom, we immediately think of the redemption that Christ proffered for us. We think of of ransom as a redemption price. But Solomon, I don't think, is talking about ransom as a means for redemption here. What he's saying is that he is observed in life, that there are certain truisms, and it seems to be that the righteous are protected and yet the wicked are punished. And so he sees in that reality that the punishment of the wicked acts like a ransom for the righteous. Now, one commentary that I read tried to give an example from the Bible of what Solomon is getting at and went to the book of Esther and said the same way that Haman built a scaffold in order to hang Mordecai, but he himself ended up hanging on it for the redemption of the people of Israel so that the people of Israel ultimately went free. They used that as an example to say, see, the evil was ransomed on behalf of the righteous. So Israel there would be the righteous, Haman would be the wicked, and they said, see, that's an example of somebody paying a price for the ransom of the righteous. I don't think that Solomon had that story in mind when he wrote this. Can anybody think of why? It came after Proverbs? 
Exactly right. It hadn't happened yet. So as I read that commentary, I was like, that's not likely what Solomon was thinking about. So I tried to think of an example that Solomon would know. And there is one very obvious one that came to mind immediately, which is that the history of Israel coming into the promised land, escaping Egypt, God ransomed his people, redeemed his people out of Egypt, and then drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And so the evil captors were killed in order to free, to redeem, to ransom the children of Israel. Now, if that is what Solomon has in mind, then I think we kind of have some idea what he was getting at when he says, the wicked is a ransom for the righteous. But then he explains it, clarifies it a little bit, and says the treacherous is in the place of the upright. So those two statements are equatable with each other. So whatever you get out of the first statement has to be the same as the second statement. The treacherous is in the place of the upright. Okay, well then, the most I think we can get out of that safely is that Solomon observed, probably as judge, as king in Israel, that the wicked were judged, that the righteous went free, and that in terms of judgment, the wicked acted like a ransom price for the righteous. Now, whatever that means beyond that, whatever that means societally, whatever that means theologically, I don't really know. This is one of those moments in the Bible, just like when I get to heaven, I'm going to go to John immediately. I'm going to find John. I'm looking for John. The minute I walk through the, the gates of heaven, I'm looking for John. I'm gunning for John. I'm going to go to him and say, what did the thunder say? I just, I've spent my whole life wondering what the thunder says. Then I'm going to Solomon. I'm going to say, now, that wicked is a ransom for the righteous thing. What does that mean exactly? Because I really don't know, and neither apparently do any of the commentators, because not a single commentary I read had a satisfying answer for it. Mm. Would anyone like to offer an understanding of it? No one's got anything? Okay. Verse 19, then. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. You don't have to make that face, Charlie. We actually dealt with this verse last week. And so we're just going to kind of pass over it tonight because we really talked about it at some length last week. But it is true that it's better to live all by yourself in a desert land. It's better to be hot and thirsty and not be around contentious and vexing, confusing, argumentative people, especially in Solomon's case, a contentious and vexing woman. And we are talking about a guy here who had a thousand women around him. So he would know what he's talking about. Verse 20, there is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. Now, we looked at the first half of that verse when we were looking at verse 17. 
but it's saying the same thing we've already discussed. If there's any kind of precious treasure, any kind of oil in the dwelling of the wise, then that's why it's there, because he's wise, because he worked for it, because he assembled those things, and so he has adequate within his house. But a foolish man is just going to spend it on himself, on his love of pleasure. He's constantly going to consume the things that he has rather than going out and working to get more of it. So he's going to run out of it. He's going to become poor, and he just swallows it up. Verse 21, then. He who pursues righteousness and loyalty. Now, I will tell you that the Hebrew word that is translated loyalty there is oftentimes translated love also in the Old Testament. So it is the kind of love that has to do with loyalty, a companionship that you can actually count on, a person who you can trust. Somebody who you can tell your secrets. Someone who's going to be with you thick or thin. The friend who sticks closer than a brother. He who pursues righteousness and that kind of love and loyalty finds love, righteousness, and honor. I think the easier way to say that is you get what you put out. Whatever it is you put out with people, if you're loyal to people, if you're kind, loving to people, if your pursuit in this lifetime is righteousness, then guess what you're going to find? You're going to find righteousness because that's what you're pursuing. You're going to find life. That means abundance. That means a life that is worth living as opposed to Solomon's several references to things that lead to death. And you're going to find honor. You're going to be respected in society. People are going to respect you. People are going to know that they can come to you in their time of need or in their times when they need to express themselves in secret to somebody. They know they can trust you because you are loyal, because you are in pursuit of the kind of righteousness that Solomon's been describing all the way through this book. Look, if if somebody comes to you and tells their secrets to you, And then you turn out not to be very loyal. You go and you do the gossiping, the backbiting, the talking behind their back. You go and you tell other people or you use that information to damage them. Then you are not actually being obviously righteous. You're being all the things that Solomon has described as evil, as wicked. Because you are using other people for your own benefit. And so he says, if you pursue righteousness, then I think it's kind of axiomatic that you're going to be loyally loving. If you're pursuing righteousness, if you're pursuing what Solomon has already described as righteousness, then you're going to be trustworthy. That's just part and parcel of what it is to be righteous. And if you are righteous and loyal, you're going to find life and righteousness and honor. Look at chapter 22 for just a moment, verse 4. It says, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord. So we're talking about the reward that comes as a result of two things. Your personal humility, which can only come from reverence toward God. 
If you revere God, if you have fear of God, if you understand your relationship with God, then you're not walking around being big-headed and thinking it's all about you because you understand that it's all about God and you are going to walk in humility in this lifetime. But then there is a reward according to Solomon. There's actually something that you receive as a result of that humility and your fear of the Lord. And what is it? It's the same thing that he just said. It's riches, honor, and life. If you walk in humility, if you walk in the fear of the Lord, if you walk in righteousness, if you're diligent, if you're not a sluggard, if you get up, you do the work, if you're loyal, if you're loving, if you're trustworthy, if that's the kind of person you are, then Solomon recognizes that things are going to happen good for you. The riches of life, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to become fabulously wealthy. It means the things you need in life. Whether that is food, whether that is companionship, you're going to have the good things of this life, which is how you combine the idea of riches and life, but you're also going to have honor, which means you're going to have respect among other people because they recognize that you're somebody that they can trust because you are loyal, because you are kind, that you are righteous to them, that you are honorable before all people and the reason you do that is because you have the fear of the Lord here I'll see if I can simplify that when you meet somebody who really seems to be for all practical purposes for all intents they seem to be a really committed Christian person your first instinct is that you can trust them because after all they have a larger principle in their life. If you're just talking to somebody on the street somewhere, they're not necessarily a Christian, they're just a guy that you know, who you work with, you have no basis on which to trust them, even if they're seemingly a pretty good guy, even if they may be somewhat trustworthy, you have no reason to really trust them because they don't have any larger principle that you can count on. If you know that it is God who is guiding them, who is leading them, who is instructing them, then you know that that is somebody who has the fear of God, and so that is somebody who is going to walk in the uprightness of God. That's somebody you can trust. That's somebody who's going to be loyal, but they're not going to be loyal because they themselves are just that good internally as a person. They're being that kind of righteous and loyal because of their fear of God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Well, that's somebody you can trust. That's somebody who is going to be loyal. The reward of humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life and righteousness and honor. Now verse 22 is a bit of a simile. It's not too difficult to figure out. It says that a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold on which they trust. In cities in the Middle East during Solomon's time, in order to be a successful city, you had to have walls. You had to have barricades, 
so that your enemies could not attack the city while you were sleeping. If you just had a city out in the middle of nowhere, then it's, it's pretty much open for business 24 hours a day. Marauding armies can come in and take all the stuff you have and kill and pillage any way they want. And so it's necessary that you have walls. The higher, the thicker the walls, the better. And that becomes what's known as the stronghold. It's holding the city, it's holding back the enemies, and if it is a strong fortress, it is a stronghold. And then in order to get to that city, you have to somehow break down that stronghold or you have to scale the wall in order to conquer the city. Solomon, knowing all that, having an army, having his generals, knowing what war in the Middle East is like, He then equates that to a wise man, and he says a wise man scales the city of the mighty. He's not saying everybody who's smart gets out there and climbs walls. He's saying instead, wise men know how to make a plan. They know how to think about how to approach a walled city, and they're effective in what they do. They're going to ultimately gain their goals, even if it's a hard goal, even if it's a high wall, even if it's a thick wall, even if it's a stronghold. They're going to conquer the trials of this life. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. So do you get what he's saying, what he's getting at? He's saying there's a certain kind of person who's going to be able to conquer the difficulties of this life, who's going to be able to bring down these strongholds, and the person he identifies as being able to do that is the wise man. And that takes us back to square one, because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So a wise man who has fear of the Lord, that's the kind of person who you can trust. That's the kind of person who's honorable. That's the kind of person who's going to be able to take on the hardships of this life and take them down, figure them out, work their way through them, scale the city, take down the walls, take down the strongholds in which the city trusts. Verse 23 then says, Here's another thematic element we've seen this time and time and time again. How much has Solomon already said about shut up? How much has Solomon already said about protect yourself, watch your tongue, don't gossip, don't talk about people, don't do damage with your tongue. This is such an important element that he just keeps returning to it. Verse 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Now, when Solomon uses the word soul here, the Hebrew word can mean eternal soul, that part that is ever living after you die, but it can also mean the inner man, what makes up the personality of the man. Think about in the book of Genesis when we read that God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. He became a person. Or more importantly, think about In the time of war or in the time of pestilences and stuff, you will read sometimes in the Bible the number of souls that perished. We still use that phraseology, how many souls perished in the shipwreck. So this word soul here doesn't necessarily have to mean his eternal soul, that he's bound for hell. It just means that in this lifetime, 
in order to protect yourself from the difficulties of this lifetime, one of the ways that you can do that is shut up. One of the ways that you can protect yourself from the damages that happen during this lifetime is to guard your mouth and your tongue. So to guard it, to guard your mouth, to guard your tongue, means to think very carefully about what you're saying. Think about how you're using your mouth. Think about what damage you are potentially doing. Think about whether the words that you're using are a benefit to the other person. Are you lifting the other person up? Are you encouraging the other person? Or are you tearing them down? Or are you speaking against them? Are you gossiping behind their back? There's just so many ways that you can use your tongue and your lips. We certainly know from the book of James that there is all kinds of damage that you can do with your tongue, and yet you can do so much good with your mouth and your tongue. Your mouth and your tongue can speak the gospel of Christ. Your mouth and your tongue can speak the marvels of God's grace. It can be an encouragement to people. It can lift people up, but that same mouth, that same tongue can curse people, can damage people. That same mouth, that same tongue can say things that you will never, ever be forgiven for. Same mouth. So Solomon says, guard your mouth. Be careful what you're saying, how you're talking. I just summarized it as, shut up. (laughs) Verse 24, we looked at last week. Proud, haughty, scoffers are his name, who acts with insolent pride, self-serving pride, the one who's completely involved with himself, who's willing to damage anybody else for his own good, well, then he's going to be called proud. He's going to be called haughty. He's going to be called scoffer which is one of the worst names that Solomon can think of to call people. That's what somebody is going to be called if he acts with insolent pride. I think the point that Solomon is getting at here is if you don't want to be called those things, if you don't want to rightfully be labeled any of those things, then don't act with insolent pride. Don't act with that level of self-involvement. It's the exact opposite of looking after others, taking care of others, lifting others up, giving to the poor. All of that that Solomon keeps advocating is the opposite of insolent pride. So if you don't want to be labeled as somebody who is nothing but egocentric and haughty and scoffer, well, there's a way to do that. It's don't act that way. Otherwise, you're going to be called that. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. A good name is to be more desired than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. So there's the contrast. You can either be called proud, haughty, scoffer. Those are going to be your names if you act arrogantly all the time. But a good name, a good reputation... When people hear your name, they're happy about it. When people hear your name, they know you're somebody they can trust. When people hear about you, that's a good name. And a good name is more to be desired 
than great riches. Okay, so let's go back to where we started tonight. There is the kind of person, the evil person, who heaps all his stuff on himself. He consumes everything he has on his life of pleasure. That wicked man, that arrogant man, that self-serving man is going to be called proud and haughty and scoffer. In other words, he's going to be named bad names. But then a good name is more to be desired than riches throughout the book of Proverbs. We have read the contrast between the person who becomes poor and the person who has enough, who has oil, who has treasures in his home. And then that would leave you with the impression that what Solomon is saying is it's good to be rich. It's good to be king. It's good to have stuff. Ultimately, that's not what Solomon is getting at. Because he takes all of that, all of those riches, all of that accumulation of wealth, and he says, but to have a good reputation among other people, to be someone that other people can trust, to have a name that is a good name, is actually more valuable, more to be desired than having all the great riches. So in day-to-day life, it's good to have stuff. If you have stuff, thank God for it. Be generous with it. But that's not really ultimately what you're after in this lifetime. If you fear God, if you are pursuing righteousness, then you're going to work to be generous. You're going to be trustworthy. You're going to be loyal. You're going to be kind. And therefore, you're going to have a good name. And that, according to Solomon, is the most valuable thing you can have in this lifetime. Favor is better than silver and gold. In other words, favor from other people. When other people see you and like you, see you coming and are happy at you, who trust you, who are willing to invest in you because they know that you're trustworthy. He says that kind of favor, that kind of good name, people liking you for who you are, down deep, your personality, your character. He says that's more beneficial to you in this lifetime than having all the money. Because some people can have money, can have wealth, can have oil, can have wine, and heap it all on themselves. And that's not a good name. Instead, what you want is the good reputation. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. Verse 25, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death for his hands refuse to work and all day long he is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. We've already looked at those verses. Verse 27 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. This is something that Solomon has already said. Proverbs 15.8. Somebody real quick go back and look at Proverbs 15.8. You're going to see that exact phrase, that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. When we got to... That verse in Proverbs 15, I spent a little time saying the wickedness of the wicked is wickedness all the time. No matter what a wicked person does, even if it has the outward appearance of righteousness, it's still wickedness because it's a wicked person doing it. And so if a wicked person 
does the stuff of religion, the religion of the Jews at this point was to sacrifice to God, bring the animals, constantly killing the animals in the temple, constantly bringing sacrifices before God. And so we looked at the various different verses where God said, I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. That it wasn't ultimately about the sacrifices. If you weren't doing the sacrifices with a right heart before God, that your sacrifices were useless, pointless. They got you no benefit at all. And so the sacrifice of the wicked is not a holy thing. It's not a righteous thing. It's toyavah. It's abomination before God. So if wicked people bring cattle and sheep and birds and sacrifice, 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 blood, blood, blood before God, but then they go out and live their life in a wicked way, and I think Solomon has been defining what that wickedness looks like, if you go out and be wicked after that, your sacrifice benefited you nothing, not at all. So empty religion and acting religious has no value to you if your heart is wicked, if your life is wicked, if your actions are wicked, if the way you deal with other people is wicked, then going in every so often and acting religious gets you nothing. There's no benefit to it. Keep your sheep. Proverbs 15.8, what does it say? The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Now, in 15.8 that Tom just read, there's a contrast between the prayer of the upright and the sacrifice of the wicked. But in verse 27, there is a summary statement that Solomon creates. He says this, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, so then how much more when he brings it with evil intent. Okay, so that's why I took the time to describe previously that if you live your life wickedly, but then you go and do the religion, that it's just empty activity. It doesn't bring you any benefit. Solomon says here, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. We've already established that. But then... Imagine a situation where somebody brings that sacrifice, some wicked person brings the sacrifice, and their reason for bringing the sacrifice has a wicked intent behind it to begin with. So he's saying not only is it an abomination, but it's even worse than just being an abomination before God, because even the sacrifice itself has a wicked intent. It's not a neutral intent it's not just somebody who's wicked and then wants to show other people that he's still religious. It's somebody who sacrifices for some wicked intent, which would be, of course, sacrificing to an idol, sacrificing because you're doing it presumptively, thinking that you're going to force God to forgive you because, after all, you did the stuff, you brought the sacrifice. Or doing it in order to shame other people. If the poor are there in the temple who can't afford anything but a couple of sparrows that are sold for a farthing. And you come in and show off 
the size of your sacrifice and what you can do and what you've accomplished, well, then your intent is to shame somebody else. That's a wicked intent in the sacrifice. And so it kind of ties in with everything else that Solomon has been saying about how the wicked love their pleasure, how they heap it all on themselves, how they don't give to the poor, they don't look after the poor, and so then even their sacrifices when they come to the temple and try to appear righteous, appear like they are worshiping God, even that worship is evil at its core and evil in its intent, and that makes it utterly detestable before God. So once again, God sees the intention of the heart. God understands why you're doing it. You see, uh, Jesus in the temple who saw the woman who gave all that she had, two cents maybe, and it was all that she had. It was her whole living. It was all she had left, and that's what she put in the temple treasury. Jesus says she put in more than all the rest. And the rich were coming and making a big to-do of their big gifts and their sacrifices. But from Jesus' perspective, he said, she gave everything she had. That's more. So Jesus looks at the heart. God looks at the intention of the heart. So the giving that you do, the sacrificing that you do, if you're doing it with a wicked intention, if you're doing it for purposes other than the genuine worship of God, keep your money. Because it is no benefit to you spiritually to sacrifice in an evil way. A false witness will perish, but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. That is an obvious contrast between a false witness. We have identified a false witness a few times now in the book of Proverbs. The false witness is the person who says he saw something when he didn't really see it. He's the person who says, oh yeah, I was there, I'm a witness, but he's false. He wasn't there. He didn't witness it, so he's lying in order to get somebody else in trouble. The false witness, though, is ultimately going to perish. He's going to be cut off at some point. By contrast, the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. So the contrast is between perishing and going on forever. And what perishes? Lying. What goes on forever? The truth. So I think the spiritual implication of that verse is if you go through this life being false, being a liar, those lies are going to die with you. But the truth, the real truth, the genuine truth, Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, those things that you say that are actually true, which can only be the things that God said, those are the only real truths in life, but the more that you say and advance and live by the truth that is the truth, that truth exists forever. The contrast is striking, that that perishes and that that goes on forever. So be true, be honest, be forthright. Don't be a false witness. Tell the truth. A wicked man shows a bold face, but as for the upright, he makes his way sure. The contrast here is a wicked man pretends confidence in the way he looks. The wicked man looks like he's doing fine because he's got that bold face. 
And he's confident, he's self-confident, he's going to march through life making everybody believe that he's fine, he's got this all under control. He's going to put on that bold face, even though what he's doing is chicanery, is false, is wicked. He's going to look like he knows what he's doing, but by contrast, the person whose way is really sure, really secure, the wicked man looks like his way is secure. He pretends that his way is secure. He puts on the air that his way is secure, but his bold face isn't going to get him the surety and security in life that he thinks he has. The way to get surety and security in life is to be upright. But as for the upright, he makes his way sure. He makes his way secure. His way is going to be the right way. He's going to walk the straight path. He's not going to walk the crooked path because of uprightness, not because of his own ego, his own bold face, his own self-confidence. That's how wicked people act. But if you want to have the proper path in this life, the straight path in this life, then walk uprightly and God is going to steer your path for you. So the contrast, again, is enormous. You're either going to pretend by your bold face or you're going to have a sure, secure way because you're walking in uprightness. Verse 30 we looked at last week. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. If it wasn't this late, I would drill down on this again. Because this is one of those phrases from Solomon that shows that Solomon absolutely believed in the sovereignty of God. Because he is saying there is no wisdom, there's no man-made wisdom, there's no thinking that all men collectively can do that is going to be more than what the Lord already knows. We collectively, if we all get together, if we all put our thoughts together and we all had some collective knowledge, some collective wisdom, everything that we have assembled is still what God already knew. There is no wisdom against the Lord. And there's no understanding. If we reach the point where we think we have total comprehension of everything there is to know in this lifetime, which clearly we have not yet, but even if we could so that we had comprehension and understanding of everything that is, we still are only discovering what God already knows because God created everything. And then finally, there is no counsel which means even if we all get together and say collectively, this is the way I think it ought to go. This is the advice that I'm going to give God. <laughs> I'm going to tell God, look, we people, we all got together collectively and we have decided that this is the way that life ought to go for all of us collectively. This is how it ought to work. There's nobody who ever counseled God. There's nobody who ever said to God, this is how it ought to be done, and then gave him information that he didn't previously have. The preacher phrase is, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? God knows everything. God made everything. God is in control of everything. And therefore, since that's the case, there is no wisdom and there is no understanding and there is no counsel against the Lord. He's got it all. He's got all the wisdom. He's got all the understanding. And he's got all the counsel. He's got all the knowledge. He's got all the understanding that is necessary to keep his universe going. Because that 
some point in the, I hope, not too distant future, he's going to burn this planet up, according to Peter, and then he's going to start all over again, new heavens, new earth. And he can do that if he wants because it's his. So quick quiz. April, do you have any idea how to completely destroy and rebuild the planet? No. No, okay, kind of out of your league, right? Yes. Okay, well then, you can't possibly have wisdom and understanding beyond God. Because mm. God knows how to do that. He's already declared he's going to do it. And because he's already declared he's going to do it, that's his decision. That's his counsel. That's his wisdom. He's going to do it. I like the phrase, <laughs> the things that happen in life that I just don't comprehend sometimes, the, the bad things that happen and even some of the good sometimes. I, I like the phrase, it is what it is. Mm. It just is. And we just have to accept that that's what it is. Because we can't change it. We can't change the mind of God. We can't change the counsel of God. We can't talk him into something else. He's going to do what he's going to do. Our job is to bring ourselves in line, in league, with what God has already declared he's going to do. He's already laid out his counsel. He's already told us what he's about, what he's going to do. And therefore, when he does it, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Instead, we should bow down before him and say... This is your plan. This is your planet. And I myself belong to you. You do what is right in your own good pleasure, in your own mind. And there is no counsel against you. The same thing that King Nebuchadnezzar came to. That all the inhabitants of the earth, all the armies of heaven, everybody is reputed as nothing. And God does all his good pleasure among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and nobody gets to say to him what are you doing because his counsel will stand he will do all his own counsel and all his good pleasure and there's no counsel against the Lord the wisdom the understanding the counsel all belongs to him verse 31 and we're done for the night the horse is prepared for the day of battle. In other words, what Solomon's saying, very similar to what I just read, previous verse, Solomon says, you can prepare for stuff. If you know there's a battle coming, if you know there's a war coming, one of the chief weapons that they used a couple thousand years ago in the Mideast, one of the chief weapons was the horse. The horse was very, very important in battle. So they armored their horses. And uh, they would prepare the horse so that the horse didn't get speared or hurt, so that the horse could keep acting in battle. So you prepare your horse to go into battle because you know you're going into battle, so you prepare your horse. So in other words, you see trouble coming. You know what's happening in this life. You make your preparations. Okay, that makes sense. It makes sense that you make your preparations for what you know is coming but then the second half is, but victory belongs to the Lord. Mm -hmm. So no matter how much you prepare for what's coming in life, if it goes your way, that's because God chose to make it go your way. He still gets the credit, thank him. If you prepare and prepare and you know these things are coming and you get ready for these things and it doesn't go your way, well, that's because there's no counsel against the Lord. 
That's the way he's decided it's going to go. And there's nothing you can do about it. Instead, you have to accept that that's the way God has decided it. So two seemingly contrasting ideas that I actually think run in parallel in this lifetime here on planet Earth. Make your plans. Go ahead and do the work. Solomon says, store up. Prepare for the the hard times when they come. Have something in reserve. Make your plans. It's good to be wise. It's good to be thinking. It's good to have a plan and work your plan. But if it turns out good, if it works out good for you, that's because God deigned that it was going to work out well for you. And if you make your plan and it doesn't work out well for you, that's because God deigned that the trouble was going to come into your life for his own purposes. And you just don't get to argue against him because all the understanding of what's happening is his and the counsel of what actually comes to pass is his. And so, yes, make your plans, but then even as you make your plans, you turn your plans over to him and you say, not my will, but yours be done. That's what the Bible says throughout Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus himself, be wise in this lifetime, but recognize that God's sovereignty is what's actually going to come to pass. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.